I'd like to begin by saying that it was a pleasure to work with Abigail as well. Um, but it has been so gratifying to listen to the conversations going on over the last couple days in these rooms. And I kept trying to encourage everybody I met to come because I knew that the more people we got in the room, the more excellent conversations that we would have because we're sharing about our ministry with people with disabilities. And it's just a wonderful thing to experience and to see. Um, I know that some of you have come to hear me speak, but some of you, it's the end of a very long day. And I also know that you've learned a lot at this conference. So if the best use of your time is to sit there and make notes about what you've learned and not really listen to me, I'm not gonna be the least bit offended. I, no, I'm serious because I really want you to take what you've learned and go back to your communities. Um, I have a couple things to offer today and then I'm really interested in continuing this conversation together. In a 1983 book entitled Local Knowledge, the American anthropologist Clifford Geertz published an essay entitled Common Sense as a Cultural System. In it, he wrote that while religion rests its case on revelation, science on method, and ideology on moral passion, common sense rests its case on the assertion that it is not a case at all, just life in a nutshell. It seems a rather strange thing for an anthropologist like Geertz, who is best known for his work in faraway places like Java, Bali, and Morocco, to pursue as commonplace and commonsensical, so ordinary and local a subject as that of common sense. But what Geertz goes on to point out through a cross-cultural study of intersexuality that displaces deep-seated American horror and prejudice is that the content of common sense cannot be cataloged logically precisely because it lies, as he says, so artlessly before our eyes that it is almost impossible to see. Thus, he argues that when it comes to common sense, anthropology can be of use here in the same way that it is generally. By providing out-of-the-way cases, it sets nearby ones in altered context. Thus, in this lecture I will give today, I'm gonna to try to make sense of disability anthropologically by considering a few liminal cases that set some of our nearby ones, especially ministry in the church, hopefully, in altered context. The problem that I'm tackling then is this sense that there's something obvious or clearly understood about disability or people with disabilities when it comes to life in the church, but the plurality of experiences at this very conference even experiences of that very seemingly uniting term, disability, we have very different experiences of that, suggest that this is anything but the case. And indeed, disability, especially ministry with young people with disabilities in the church, is a topic worthy of much study. But it seems we may need new methodologies to make the familiar strange and the strange familiar to alter not just our minds, but our hearts. Many of the present strategies and ministries are just not working. So while I swear I am not going to try to make you all into anthropological converts today, if that happens naturally, though, so be it, um, I'm going to try to demonstrate how anthropological epistemology and methods may be helpful in displacing dominant, taken-for-granted points of view, the common sense of disability, if you will, and inviting us to see and experience disability differently. Taking you to China, and then demonstrating its effect in helping us to view and understand disability differently 
is perhaps the most obvious anthropological move. But I would argue uh, that the move happening in some of the most promising work you've seen in these last couple days on disability work at this conference is also deeply anthropological and that it takes seriously the particular cases of people with disabilities to shed more light for all of us on what it means to be human. In fact, it may sound a little irreverent or even heretical, but what I think we need in the church these days is deep attention to the people in front of us in all their differences and uniqueness, desires and gifts. What if we were so deeply attentive to the very people in front of us so as to prompt not just a shift in worldview and relationships with others, but a transformation in faith, a richer, more fuller understanding of the God we serve. After all, isn't such attention a form of prayer? Is it thus possible in that deeply attending to people, we can see not only our cultural and anthropological differences, but our theological blind spots as well? You'll notice that much of my presentation today describes my own experiences of what Dr. Swinton has called a discipleship of unknowing, a process of being disrupted and disoriented from previous assumptions and radically reoriented to a God who is deeply attentive and yet highly mysterious. My contention is that anthropology can be a partner in this discipleship of unknowing. It's always been my desire as a cultural anthropologist who delves in this work of cultural translation to be a cultural translator of sorts for the church. So I would love to explore together what theological shifts might be possible for us in shirking what I will go on to call our theological ethnocentrism and appreciating the difference that disability makes, not as a mere form of diversity that suffers inclusion, but as a valuable perspective that affords a myriad of spiritual gifts. And my greatest hope is that the church can be a place where such a cultural shift can happen. Whereas the world worships diversity, perhaps the church can be a place where difference is truly dignified. Now, I am not a person myself who identifies as having a disability. And so this talk will be from my point of view and there will be some limitations alongside that. I'll talk about them. I'm not even a person who set off to study disability, but a person who by circumstance and surprise came to study disability, and that first happened in China, among foster families who were raising children with disabilities. When I initially made my way to China, I was interested in studying foster mothers that were raising children who were eventually adopted to the West. I was presuming that I was going to be spending time with young families that were raising young children, probably healthy baby girls, for adoption. But what I very quickly discovered is that not only were these foster mothers much older than I expected, much poorer and disenfranchised, but the children they were raising were all children with disabilities. This is a key feature of anthropological research. It's what we would call an ethnographic surprise. The idea that in ethnographic research, you can't control the experiment like you would in a laboratory, nor would you even seek to, because that would wrest control away from your informants who are supposed to through their very own ways of being human, teach you something about their world and the world. So this very fact, which became apparent to me almost immediately in my research in China, that most of the kids in foster care, at least state-sponsored foster care, are kids with disabilities, is why anthropologists go to the places they study and live alongside the people they study in the first place. 
because there are so few things you can really know or understand without being there. We really believe in the insight of lived human experience, and so for anthropologists, no case is too rare or insignificant. In fact, we believe that the exceptional cases often have a lot to teach us about cultural norms. So unexpectedly and professionally, I began to think and learn, and through my experience with these families, I learned a lot about disability. I learned that Chinese orphanages were no longer crowded with baby girls, but were increasingly home to children with disabilities, children with heart disease, cerebral palsy, cleft palates, developmental disabilities, and autism, but also children with facial deformities, extra fingers, or club feet, not normally what you might think of when you think of disability. And what I noticed, because I lived in China for two years studying and spending time with these families, is that foster parents were not initially always welcoming to their children with disabilities. They sometimes even made disparaging comments about their children's appearances or lack of abilities. But the majority of them, over time, in caring for children with disabilities, were radically transformed by these relationships. So even though people with disabilities, not unlike in the United States, are still often discriminated against and undervalued in China, among these elderly foster mothers, these children became quite valuable and quite precious, and the experience of caring for them and growing to love them made these women reevaluate not only their own lives, but just they saw themselves differently. So inadvertently, what I ended up studying in China and when I came back from China was something called personhood or the culturally contextual value of what it means to be a person. This is the type of stuff that anthropologists love because while it seems fairly obvious, even commonsensical that everyone is a person, not everyone is treated as a person in terms of not just being afforded certain rights, citizenship or value across the world, but you can learn a lot about a culture by seeing the people that are treated as exceptional, deficient or less than. But what I kept being struck by in China was not just how exceptional these children with disabilities were, and they really were discarded or abandoned by their families, but I was struck by also how malleable concepts of personhood are, culturally and relationally, and how reciprocal, reciprocally significant these relationships between foster mothers and foster children were. So it wasn't just that children with disabilities found care or even love with these foster mothers, but the elderly foster mothers found purpose, pride, and dignity because of their relationships with their foster children. And it actually became a problem. I'm happy to talk about this more at some point, but these rather poor, disenfranchised women who had at first obediently taken in these children from the state started to stick up for themselves when the state tried to take advantage of them. They weren't just asking for more money. They demanded to be treated better. They demanded better services, medical care, education for the kids with disabilities. And in many cases, when a child was adopted or ready to be adopted, these foster mothers refused to take in another child or they lobbied to keep the child that they had. These children that the state saw as so without value, so readily replaceable, were hardly replaceable to the women that loved them. They really mattered. And Perhaps none of us should have been so surprised, or I shouldn't have been so surprised by these transformations, especially the fact that they were more about learning to see others and see ourselves differently in relationship rather than necessary physical changes or medical transformations to people with disabilities. 
After all, scholars of disability and advocates who have formed the bedrock of what we today call the interdisciplinary field of disability studies have been writing for decades about the shift from a medical to a social model or a social understanding of disability. And it's this social understanding of disability that's actually included in the Americans with Disabilities Act and because they try to make reference not just to structural barriers for people with disability, but to social barriers for access and inclusion for people with disabilities. And people with disabilities themselves have been arguing for decades that the real problems they experience aren't just so, uh, physical or medical, but they're social. They and their bodies are perceived as deficient in the eyes of others, and therefore they're discriminated against implicitly and unconsciously, sometimes explicitly, by a society that fails to consider them as persons, but rather looks at them as problems or obstacles to be overcome. One of the best illustrations of this transition from thinking about disability as a medical to a social model is from activist and scholar Vic Finkelstein. And my students uh, learned about this on the first week of class. We talked about this wheelchair village that Finkelstein imagines, um, and it's occupied and designed around people in wheelchairs. So the uh, building codes regulate room height at seven foot four, door frames come in at five foot around me, and counters are even lower. And everyone in the village is happy because the buildings and the environment are in tune with the wheelchair user's needs. But when a few able-bodied people, by no choice of their own, have to come and settle in the village, they keep walking into the door frames. They keep hitting their heads, they get bruised. And they have to go see the village doctors who are also in wheelchairs to treat their ailments. So they get special toughened helmets and braces that are developed so that the able-bodied can navigate the wheelchair world because of their disabilities. And they really can't perform most of the jobs in the village they don't fit in, so they're readily discriminated against because of their differences. At the end of Finkelstein's anecdote, the able-bodied come to consciousness, realizing they were never consulted by wheelchair users about their needs in the society, and they band together to fight segregation. They realize that perhaps their disabilities could be overcome if society were to change and adjust, not just to their needs, but to their points of view. In my classes on disability, I like to begin with Finkelstein because it's such a dramatic reversal of the way so many of us are used to seeing the world and seeing people with disabilities. When people with disabilities hear it, they just go, yeah, that's what it's like. <laughs> but it's a demonstration that calls some of us to what anthropologists call ethnocentrism. We have ways of seeing the world that unconsciously reflect the biases of our own lived and learned sensibilities our own ways of being and our narrow embodied experiences of the world. But what I so appreciate about both anthropology and disability studies is that they are disciplines that realize that as much as we struggle to understand one another, we can also really never know what it's like to be in the body or the experience in the life of someone else. Both anthropology and disability remark upon the variety and diversity of life experiences out there, realizing that our own viewpoints will not suffice. So after several years in the field, as we say, I returned to Princeton to start writing up my research. I really missed China, and now I couldn't imagine my life without China. But something else had changed in China, too. 
watching these women care and love these foster children with disabilities made my husband and I, who had never really wanted to have uh, children of our own before, we wanted to go on that adventure of learning to love someone that much. We were um, really touched by these families and the way that they loved each other so fiercely. And I'm sure it was naive. I feel like every kind of entree into parenthood is naive, but we wanted to learn to love someone that much. And so we found ourselves wanting to become parents too. In the summer of 2013, I became pregnant. And in February of 2014, I gave birth to a baby girl. She was in the sweetest newborn stupor for several weeks. And then abruptly she took to crying, really screaming nearly all the time. So we tried everything we could do to make her comfortable. We took her outside, we held her day and night, we fed her special formula, we put her on reflux medicine because she was constantly vomiting. And when those things didn't work, we started seeing specialists who noticed her head wasn't growing very much. We went to a pediatric neurologist who ordered an MRI that revealed colossal brain damage. And then our baby had five seizures in rapid succession. She was placed on phenobarbital and then she screamed endlessly through withdrawal as we tried to wean her off of that medicine. She was given a nasal tube for feeding and then after further progression in brain damage, permanently lost the ability to feed by mouth and was placed on a gastric feeding tube. I started to sleepwalk my way through major life events, <laughs> my dissertation defense, my first year of teaching, my husband's new job, because we hadn't found a way to tell anyone besides close friends and family what was going on. Each subsequent hospitalization, seizure, or major surgery stung. And each reveal was exceedingly painful as people grieved for us and for our daughter. There was no easy way to tell people that Lucia would not be who they imagined her to be, that she would not be normal. When a second MRI showed more brain damage, the doctors knew they were dealing with a genetic degenerative condition. When she was 13 months old, doctors finally determined that our daughter Lucia was born with an extremely rare progressive genetic disease of the brain called Icardi Gutierrez syndrome. It's so rare that in every 100,000 people, only one person has the recessive gene for it. And my husband and I both happen to have it. And on our first birth had a daughter who was born with it. Now I was truly on another great adventure in my life, but it's not the type of exotic adventure that most people really long to hear about or even value. I realized very quickly that while most people kind of want to go to China, very few people long to be the parents of a child with a profound cognitive disability. I realized this when I tell people about my daughter and they would respond not with joy or curiosity or even questions, but with long faces and apologies. I'm sorry, they would say. I'm so sorry. And those words began to pain me. I dreaded them a lot. At first, I didn't know why those words bothered me so much. People were just trying to be nice. They were worried about us. Perhaps they didn't know what to say. But with each sorry, I started to realize that the problem was that their words implied that there had been some kind of loss, some kind of inconvenience at the very least, tragedy at the very worst with the birth of my daughter. That the kind of joy we express at the birth of a child or the growth of a toddler were reserved for healthy kids 
rather than for children with disabilities like my daughter. From the tiny invocation of I'm sorry, I started to see the limitations, the disappointments, the discrimination that were implicitly heaped upon my daughter in her life. Disability wasn't just a challenge for the Chinese in terms of understanding personhood, but it was a challenge now of my everyday life for our family, for my daughter. So about this time, two years ago, I published a piece expressing some of my feelings about this by the title of I'm not sorry in the Huffington Post, and it went pretty viral. Um, the title of the piece, of course, it was intended to be provocative, to talk about the fact that I'm not sorry in any way about my daughter or her birth or her life. But online at my church lectures that I gave, there was always some pushback. Well, if I shouldn't say I'm sorry, what do you want me to say? People would shrug and complain. And to be honest, those comments really pissed me off. <laughs> Here I told you what not to say, and you have the audacity to put it back on me to tell you what to say, I thought. But in that moment, I felt but a small fraction of the marginalization that people with disabilities feel nearly every day. They speak their truth in our churches, and we often say that we care, but we don't really want to hear it, especially when it comes to youth. When we say that we value their perspectives, we often mean it in so long as they validate our meager efforts at inclusion. <laughs> when they push back, when they tell us that the church is inadequate, ill-equipped, exclusive and ableist, we often mutter, how dare they? Or their parents tell us we're not doing enough. In this way, the limitations we place upon young people with disabilities are subtle, internal, and often very well-meaning. We might even call them ministry. With every I'm sorry, every well, what do you want us to do? Ableist microaggressions permeate not just our speech, but maybe even our ministry. The problem remains that we can only understand the world from our viewpoint. And even for a person steeped in anthropology and in ministry, even for a parent of a child with disabilities, my viewpoint is still necessarily flawed, narrow, and limited. In my anthropological research, my ministry, even my own life, I have discovered that in our eagerness to connect with and care for one another, we as human beings often struggle to truly acknowledge, grapple with, and honor the fundamental differences between us. In fact, the way we often deal with difference when we experience it is to become so uncomfortable that we seek to obliterate it, dismiss it, collapse it, rendering it insignificant. What's curious and confusing is that these efforts to dismiss or collapse difference are not always obviously offensive, demeaning, or ill-willed. So many times they come from a place of care or concern by a person who is able-bodied for a person with a disability. But what's crucial is that because they dismiss difference, they don't really get us any closer to reckoning with it or understanding one another. In fact, inter interactions like these reproduce the very staid notions of difference we as a society have constructed between people with disabilities and able-bodied people precisely because they construct people with disabilities as passive or deficient or at the very least 
in need of able-bodied enlightenment to be people. I've spoken about how distancing it was to me that people all around me had this impulse to mourn and grieve Lucia, even as she was still very much alive. But one thing that I have to share with you that is so wonderful is that there were also plenty of people who heaped love upon her and our family, so much so that I never questioned whether she would lack for love. Thank God that even in the broken witness of Christians, the church and her faith, one thing I know for sure is that Lucia is going to be loved, that she doesn't lack for that love. But let me tell you something about myself. Deep in my heart of hearts, and this is something before today that I've only admitted to a few people at a few moments along the way, um, I had a fear for Lucia. I worried that while Lucia might be able to receive love, she may never be able to truly give it or express it to others. This really broke my heart, not because I had expectations that Lucia should be able to tell me that she loved me, but that I realized to me what it means to be human is not just to receive love, but to be able to give it. And in fact, in academia, I've told many agnostics and atheists that I'm really not a Christian. Maybe I shouldn't say this to this group so much. <laughs> so because of the afterlife or the cosmic power of God, but I'm a Christian because of what God is doing right here, right now, that I feel so blessed to be a part of. I'm a Christian because this dynamic relationship with God makes life so profound. And so now as I say it, I realize that I wasn't just worried about Lucia's ability to give and express love. So much as I was worried about Lucia's ability to be well like me and to be in a relationship with God like me. Again, these might seem like sincere things for a parent to worry about and wish for their child. And in some humble sense, they still are. But time and revelation, I believe God's ministry through my own daughter have taught me that beneath their good intentions, there was also such a self-conscious self-centered fear that oddly spoke so much more about my own personhood rather than that of the person whom I gave birth to. You see, what I've been completely flabbergasted by as my daughter nears four years old next month is how decidedly unhandicapped she is when it comes to showing love to people all around her. I realize now that buried in my fears for her were these normative, self-referential ideas about what I thought it could or would or should look like to give love. But what's happened in loving and learning alongside Lucia is that my preconceived notions of what love looked like have been so powerfully disrupted by her different and good ways of being in this world. I'll give you an example. A few months ago, at a meeting at Lucia's school, an IEP meeting, they were talking, the teachers, about how sluggish and quiet Lucia had been, how infrequently she vocalizes or smiles or laughs. I was puzzled, but I told them, yeah, she's not really a morning person. In the afternoon, she tends to talk a lot more. She talks, they query. Oh, yes, I explained. She babbles, she giggles, she smiles and like any parent. I bragged and bragged and bragged on her so much so that I convinced the school to move her speech sessions to the afternoon so they could see her talking. The following afternoon, Lucia's nurse came home chuckling. When I'd said that Lucia talks, the school staff assumed that I'd meant strung together words and sentences. <laughs> 
I was kind of mystified by the miscommunication. I hadn't meant talking in the traditional sense, but it's still the word my husband and I use for it. And a few days later, after they'd switched Lucia's speech session to the afternoon, Lucia began to talk to them too. Not using words per se, but vocalizations that were obvious responses and communications with great wide smiles, gregarious giggles, the nurse reported that the speech therapist couldn't stop laughing herself that afternoon. And if that's not talking or giving love or ministry, I don't know what is. <laughs> the line of questioning that people so often pursue to understand Lucia and people with disabilities tracks in diagnoses, medical terminologies, and developmental markers. What is her disease? Can she walk? Can she talk, they worry? But when I answer these questions, people hardly get to know Lucia because I think they presume like I once did that her entire being is disabled and defined by these circumstances. But of course, I've realized that Lucia simply cannot be defined by what she doesn't do. And in fact, I obviously really struggle as a parent to describe her that way anyway. <laughs> what I think is even more true is that Lucia has pushed me and pushes others around her to find new ways to not just communicate but to describe and understand and learn what it means to communicate, to love and to be. I realize now that my initial fears about whether Lucia would be able to communicate love to others were based on my own incredibly limited understanding of what that looks like. And that had I upheld them, had I persisted in this effort to make her more like me, I would have missed out on the profound differences God has made between us that have taught both of us so much. Instead, not just my world, but my very ideas about what it means to be a person and even what it means to be a person of faith, my very ideas about who God is have been so importantly and radically disrupted by who God has made Lucia to be. So I've gestured to it before, but what this has taught me is that we as humans are also theologically ethnocentric. When it comes to God, we still, and especially for Christians, even after the radical disruption of Jesus's sacrificial love, we presume that God will love like us. God is more like us than not. God is one of us, whatever that means. But what if God is a God of ethnographic surprise? What if yours and my most profound experiences and glimpses of God are those moments in which we discover God, not because of how God did the expected or met our own expectations, but where God taught us something presumably impossible about what it actually means to be human, where God made God's self known in defying or complicating or subverting our expectations. What if God is a God who dignifies difference in God's very being. And we as human beings are not just want to collapse and dismiss those differences in people around us, but even on our own journeys of faith. Now, as a cultural anthropologist, the last thing I want to do is essentialize or trivialize difference. As a, I would call myself a budding practical theologian, um, I'm not suggesting that we worship difference either. And as a scholar of disability, I really want to recognize the true struggles um, for people with disabilities in this world because society is so inhospitable. I want to recognize the pain that a lot of people with disabilities live with, and I want to recognize the diversity across this category of disability. But as a human being, what I'm trying to get at 
is that respecting and embracing difference in relationship opens us up to truly appreciate the gift of difference that I believe God has made. In other words, knowing Lucia doesn't just mean regarding and remarking on her differences from me, but being transformed by her ways of experiencing the world that are different than mine, but are a gift. I truly believe God is using, as I'm sure so many of you in this room have experienced, God is always using people with disabilities to broaden conceptions of what it means to be human, regardless of whether we're open to it or not. God was working in China far before I got there. God is working through many of you in this room today. But the work of Finkelstein and so many others who have drawn our attention to the social model of disability should also alarm us that the current state of our society does not just an injustice to people with disabilities, but to all of us. When we ostracize people with disabilities from healthcare, education, or the full rights of citizenship, and this is very close to home because this last year has been very, very difficult for people with disabilities, our common humanity is diminished because we fail to grow in our ways of perceiving, experiencing, and beholding one another in the world. When the myriad appreciations of difference along the lines of race, class, and gender in our institutions fail to include disability, we all miss out. And as long as we, as people of faith, are complicit in that common culture, and we eschew relationships with those who are different from us, bar them from worship, or discount their belonging and community and their ministry, not just from us, but to us, we're not witnessing to the fullness of God. And we're certainly not experiencing the wonder, dignity, and freedom that God's difference makes. So for these reasons, I've, I'm not just a pastor and a scholar, but I've become an advocate for people with disabilities. And I try as best I can not speak for my daughter. I find the most wisdom clearly in sharing the ways that I, her own mother, have often limited her and the ways her joy has exceeded boundaries, even the ones that I unintentionally established. I share stories of relationships in China that brought dignity to both children with disabilities and the women that raised them. And in so doing, I share stories about the gifts of difference and the transformative love of God and the wonder that even our very children are so beautifully and differently and wonderfully made. And would that God grant us the vision to see and accept and love them as they are. After all, isn't that how God loves us? Doesn't God find a way to not only make us differently, but love us respectfully and uniquely? God doesn't try to collapse or remove the cavernous differences between God and humans, but rather God radically delights in us as we are. What my faith and my ethnographic research and my motherhood teach me is that we've been wrong about so many things when it comes to disability. While we've begun to acknowledge the differences between us, differences of color, class, gender, religion, and that they have so much to teach us, we still struggle to include people with disabilities in that list. But it's precisely the struggle to include that also falls short of true humanity and true dignity in and of itself. Because efforts at inclusion reify and reproduce the current power dynamics in our society because they maintain control of one group of people, the able-bodied, over another, people with disabilities. Disability scholar Leonard J. Davis explains that this is why current emphases on diversity, so diversity is the new normal, sometimes don't do that much better than what we previously talked about as normal because they're predicating diversity on the exclusion of disability in order to make that new normal. Diversity doesn't 
always include disability. It emphatically excludes it. So I think it's pretty clear that while our churches still practically need ramps and interpreters and braille hymnals, they really need people. <laughs> they need people who will not be too afraid, too proud, too narrow, too power hungry to repent of ministry that maintains able-bodied constructions of power. But more importantly, our churches need people who will notice the problem with ableism, the way such ministry is bound up with theological ethnocentrism, particular able-bodied ways of understanding God that are limited, insufficient, and narrow. We all need to learn to see differently, not just anthropologists. And this isn't easy because it's a countercultural mission. It's a counter-common sense mission. The world, with its dogged commitment, even to something as seemingly egalitarian as inclusion, often represents another reality. But what of that altered context that I began with, that Geert spoke of? Can we seek an altered vision made possible by a God whose radical difference from us is at the very heart of a gospel that's not primarily about inclusion, but justice and dignity and grace? We need people who look to youth as people in whom God is active. People who look at youth as valuable and look at people with disabilities and are able to appreciate and receive, receive the gifts that they bring. So how do we do this? It sounds transformative and important. I truly believe that if the church could do this work, the church would not only be a refuge for people with disabilities, but the church would be a site of countercultural change. I realize that you've heard a million ways that this can happen in the last couple of days and far be it for me to give you kind of the one answer. But I have one big idea that I thought maybe would inspire you as you leave this place that would be um, amenable to your different ministries. And it's one that of course I've adapted from anthropology for the church, one that I call embracing difference as a spiritual discipline. As I've described in my own experience as an anthropologist, my failures as a parent and my challenges in ministry, we human beings are simply not very good at seeing difference as valuable or even neutral. We're constantly shaping, skewing, explaining and evaluating differences and different people that we come into contact with every day. But what if we added to our spiritual disciplines, so I don't know what yours are, but maybe reading scripture, prayer, meditation, service, what if we added to our spiritual disciplines that we already do the act of allowing space for difference and even appreciating difference before we try so hard to reform it, judge it, or rehabilitate it? I think Christians especially have been afraid of the costs of such a foray. We are afraid of where an appreciation for difference may lead us, astray from our Christian beliefs, our Christ, our God, our truth. But if we are so easily led astray from our faith when we value the differences of others, do we not serve a God who is small to begin with? If our faith falters at the very introduction of a contradiction or tension or diversity, is our faith not flimsy and perhaps very worthy of being discarded? Might we find a more robust faith as Jesus did in accompanying and learning from those who are different from us? As an anthropologist who has learned so much from others about God, precisely because of our differences, I seek a faith that is deep and profound and hearty, 
because it is constantly probed and reevaluated and tested by what I'm learning in the world. At every angle, when I exclaim, that's so fascinating, or I sit at another's feet to listen, I may risk something, but I stand to gain so much. I find this openness to difference, this grappling with diversity to be a spiritual discipline because God is nothing if not miraculously incarnate and yet profoundly different from us at the same time. But we often forget the truth. We presume that God belongs to us. God is just like us. God is ours. God always wants to be with us and for us. But I think God also wants us to read scripture against the grain, <laughs> to consider the rich diversity amongst its pages in our lives and to explore with abandon, making ourselves profoundly open to others and to God in unlikely and unexpected people and places. We can't do that if we're afraid and closed off to those who are different from us though. We can't grow if we don't allow difference to disrupt our neat beliefs and convictions. We can't truly know God if we confine ourselves to that which is similar, expected, and narrow. It's time for the church to seek a God who really does track in revelation, as Geertz once acknowledged, rather than inclusion or common sense. It's time for the church to practice repentance, humility, and forgiveness for all the ways we've failed to acknowledge God working in the lives of people with disabilities. It's time for the church to cultivate space for difference to be dignified as the gift from God that it is. And it's time for the church to not just see differently when it comes to disability, but to be and enact and enable an altered context where the fullness of humanity, the body of Christ, is obviously affected and altered by people with disabilities, where what's common are our differences, reflective of a God for whom that makes perfect sense. Thank you.